Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's September the 22nd, 2022 from a noisy San Francisco. It was noisy. It seems to have calmed down a bit. I apologize in advance if the noise um, reappears. It's the noise of heavy metal. We've been doing some heavy metal shows recently. We did one with the uh, music uh, academic Mark Levine. He's an authority on heavy metal in Islam, heavy metal music in the Muslim world. We also did a show last year with Bob Spitz, the author of a major new biography of Led Zeppelin, The Biography. So when I got a book in the mail with the title Heavy Metal, I thought, my God, another book about music, another book about Led Zeppelin or heavy metal music in the Middle East. But actually, Heavy Metal is about something entirely different. It's a book about the hard days and nights of the shipyard workers who build America's supercarriers, a very different kind of heavy metal uh, from our previous books. And the author of this heavy metal, Michael Faby, is joining us from Virginia. Michael, welcome. Are you into heavy metal, the music rather than the supercarriers? I'll I, I tell you, I, I enjoyed seeing a bit about Led Zeppelin. Um, I grew up with Zeppelin, so very much so. So, Michael, tell me about this book, uh, uh, Heavy Metal, uh, which in all seriousness is a book about the building of America's supercarriers. Um, tell me why you've written it. You seem to have dedicated your life to studying uh, aircraft carriers and their construction. It's a rather unusual preoccupation, I guess. Yeah, um, in some ways, certainly it, a lot of my professional career uh, has been looking at that uh, with not with an idea of writing a book necessarily, and that's for sure. But when I was a young cub reporter to starting out uh, more than 30 years ago, I was invited to go for a job interview down in Newport News, Virginia. And I rode my car down and decided to take kind of a spin around the neighborhood type of thing to see what was around there. Yeah, and let's then- jump in, Michael. Just okay. Um, not everyone will know what Newport News shipbuilding is. In fact, some people might think it's a magazine or a local newspaper. <laughs> what exactly is Newport News shipbuilding? So uh, Newport News shipbuilding is the major company in a place called Newport News. It's in southeast Virginia. It's uh, sort of, uh, not that far from Virginia Beach or Norfolk. A lot of people know those places. So it's just over the bridges and tunnels from Norfolk and then about maybe, uh, depending on traffic, an hour away from Virginia Beach. Um, basically, it is a company town. It, it grew up around Newport News Shipbuilding, and Newport News Shipbuilding is where right now they build all the Navy's aircraft carriers and uh, responsible basically for the construction of its submarines. Yeah, um, built five of the Nimitz class carriers, uh, so it's quite a remarkable place. How many people work at Newport News Shipbuilding? It can go up and down, but right now there's probably a little bit more than 20, 25K. It goes up to about up to 30,000. Uh, during the uh, peace dividend years, if you will, uh, where there wasn't as much work, it kind of dipped down a little bit, maybe below 20,000. Uh, it's very flexible that way, um, but it's basically a city within a city. 
Yeah, when I was um, reading about the book, it, it brought to mind Bruce Springsteen's song, Youngstown, mm. about industrial decline. I'll quote him. Well, my daddy came home on the Ohio works when he came home from World War II. Now the yard's just scrap and rubble. He said, them big boys did what Hitler couldn't do. Yeah, those mills, they build the tanks and bombs that won this country's wars. We sent our sons to Korea and Vietnam. Now, we won now we're wondering what they were dying for. Um, Newport, uh, you, what you write about um, uh, Newport New Shipbuilding is not Youngstown, is it? It's still no. active and vibrant. It's it, indeed. Now, the downtown isn't what it was back in the 60s and 70s. Uh, the downtown, like a lot of downtowns in a lot of cities have kind of like moved out from the downtown area and have been developed kind of like a city center, more of a commercial type of thing. But the place itself, especially thanks to the shipyard, is incredibly vibrant. It's, uh, it's still growing, in fact. It's just the opposite of something that's sort of wasting away. Uh, you... Um... You note a, a sticker on one of the hard hats on one of the ship workers who said, we build freedom. Um, is this a book in celebration of American labor, American muscle? There, there's certainly part of that. I mean, there, there's, there was a real sense, uh, I've heard through years about this idea that there's a corporate welfare, if you will, for the defense industry. Um, and that kind of bothered me. Me a little bit because the place where they go in and put the life and limb on the line every day, um, every hour of every day, if you know, if your head's not on a swivel, you can lose it down there. And, and so I would want to tell people what these people are like, what they go through, how much, you know, blood and, 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 you know, tears they put into doing their job they did. So that was a big part. The other part was, and I note in the book that Newport News way back when used to be called the Point of Hope, Point Hope. And it was also a sense, you know, this is a place in a place where you have 20,000 people up to 30,000 people. Like I said, a small city, you're going to have the same kind of diversity you have in any city that size, different color, creeds, all kinds of beliefs. And they have to check at the gates. They have to go in there and basically they have kind of a, a mindset of two things to mind. One is to do the best job they could do, but the other is. I mean, they want to make sure they leave at the end of the shift alive and in one piece, and their workmates leave alive and in one piece. And so there's a sense of coming together, if you will, putting everything aside for a common cause. So what you're suggesting perhaps is a kind of a, a military ethic. I mean, obviously, they're, they're building carriers for the military. But as the military, the American military ethic, has that somehow permeated the shipyard? They they do call themselves the the uh, the steelworker veterans. You know, they, they 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 consider themselves, you know, kind of like the forefront of the American military muscle, if you will. What about the issue of labor and organized labor? Are, are there unions, and 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 what is their relationship with the shipyard owners? So. There is a union there, um, steel workers. It's just, it's huge. Um, and, you know, in one sense, you have, uh, well, it didn't come there easy. This is the South. Uh, Newport News is, is very much the South. And in the South, uh, through the decade, uh, union uh, was equated with communism. 
now. So it took an awful lot to bring that union in there. I mean, when I say a lot, I mean, there were actually riots in the streets going back a few decades to bring that union in there. And there was a real sense, we don't need any union here. We treat our workers just fine. They're happy to be working for us and making all this money. And so it took a lot to bring that union in there. Um, there have been strikes. Uh, the most recent one was in 1999. And it was quite a strike and really put the shipyard back in some of its contracts and things like that. And so the union that has power there is very much a very strong union. It's something that's sought out by politicians and the like going down there. And it's something that is still very much vibrant. And, and as the shipyard grows, the union's grown too. How diverse, Michael, is the workforce? Um, you noted that Virginia is the South. Uh, you don't need me to tell you about the history of race relations or lack of race relations in the South. Um, is it mostly a, a, a white working class labor force? Not at all. Not at all. Uh, I would say that, that you know, like two major ones, white, I mean, white and black, um, there's probably equal on both there. Um, but you have basically a diversity, as I said, any kind of city you might see of 30,000 people, you have that kind of diversity in there. And so it's a lot of, of um, non-white workers, a lot of female workers. Uh, in fact, the president of the yard is, is a woman uh, right now, uh, Jeffrey Boykin. So, no, it's it's incredible by diversity. Head of the union is is a black guy um, and a lot of union leadership. But within the ranks, it's just both all the way up and down the line. So it's very diverse. In an America riven with divisions, uh, class divisions, racial divisions, cultural divisions, is there anything we can learn, do you think, we Americans, quote unquote, from uh, the Newport News shipbuilding uh, and their experience in building ships and bringing people together? Yeah, I really wish that uh, other folks could have had the access I had to go in there and see, again, this diverse workforce. Um, treating each other with respect up and down the line i mean you've had the uh the supervisors talking with the with the union employees the, you know the the steel workers with the utmost respect going to them for advice even all the way up and down the line yeah uh, you have people in there i mean if, if anyone's hurt or injured or something going on in their lives you get collections for them it becomes almost like a family and the one thing that really i i, I I get a sense when you go in there, quite honestly, that, you know, if they can do this, if they can put aside all the cultural differences, all the religious differences and everything else and go in there and just, you know, work hard together and complete their shifts, complete their work and come out the same way without, you know, any animosity whatsoever, then a sense of, of like I said before, hope that we can do that too. We can somehow put all this behind us to kind of, only get on with, you know, what America's been moving for over the last couple hundred years. At least I like to think so. Mike, on your Twitter page, uh, you have a picture of the aircraft carrier. The, the book is built around, I want to talk about that, the John F. Kennedy. Mm -hmm. And then you have, uh, it's a postcard or the image of a postcard, made great in America. I mean, it obviously mm -hmm. brings to mind uh, Trump. Was the workforce, did you get the sense that they were quite keen on Donald Trump and his idea of making America great again? 
I'll say that the force in many ways uh, mirrored the rest of the country for who supported um, the Republicans under Trump and, and those who support the Democrats. And say more. You, you had basically a kind of breakdown, yes, in, in many ways, yes. And I detail that in the book a lot. But uh, uh, this idea of, of making America great or made great in America, what's your point uh, on your Twitter page? Are you trying to suggest that places like Newport News shipbuilding is the last place in America perhaps where things are made great? Well, I, I actually, it's one of these things that, you know, on one hand, you had this this very much a call for, you have to get back to um, things that are made in America, made in the USA. You know, there, there's been, uh, I mean, going to Congress right now, there's all kinds of, you know, making America um, bills going through. A lot of the U.S. Navy shipbuilding ships now have to have so much that are come from American components. And it seemed to me that there was a sense of that somehow we were losing it, you know, that that being made in America wasn't as good as it used to be type of thing. And certainly that place in that yard, that wasn't the case at all. Uh, these were people who took a, a miss pride in what they did, whose chests all swell up when they see these characters go off and carry American presence around the globe. And so I want to capture that sense of like, yeah, we can make really good things here. You know, that's what I really want to capture with that. Yes, you know, don't kid yourself. I mean, in the last few pages of the book, uh, one of the supervisors that was talking to the workers say, you know, us around the world is trying to do what you do here. And they can't. They haven't been able to. And, and they really have not been able to not do this kind of work again and again with the perfection and efficiency that that we are. Um, Michael, is there something unique about this? I assume that to make an aircraft carrier for the US military, it's required that everything is made in America, but you can't do that with iPhones or cars or washing machines. Uh, was well, Is there any way that any of the materials for the supercarrier could have been manufactured overseas or is there some sort of law requiring that everything that goes into this ship is made in america there's going to be a percentage but as you point out especially when it comes to electronics right and while the whole machinery of that carrier is you know good old american steel and everything like that when you get to combat systems and electronics um, in many ways just as you have electronics that you know the components maybe not the systems that are integrated and everything like that but when we get down to the basic core components, some of those are going to be made overseas. The book, uh, Michael, is a book about a, I mean, it's built around the narrative of uh, a single carrier, the uh, John F. Kennedy. There are two John F. Kennedys. That's sort of surprised, uh, confused yep. me a little bit. There was one that was built, the CVA 67, that was built after the second, uh, Second World War, but your your book focuses on the new John F. Kennedy. So perhaps you might explain uh, the origins of the name and 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 this second John F. Kennedy carrier, the CVN seventy nine. Right. Well, the, the the first one was a non nuclear one. Um, it's it was one or last that was built that was non nuclear, um, and there. I, in putting together carrier names, the, the Kennedy name just holds a special mystique. 
which is why I think the Navy picked it again. You know, it was the it was the first time you had this kind of like for right. I mean, I know there were um, some suggestions that it might be named after Barry M. Goldwater um, uh, or or Arizona, and eventually it got the name of John F. Kennedy. Right, right. That goes into the naming of a carrier, as you can imagine. And so with this one, there, there was just a sense of, of carrying. There was something. There was something about the Kennedy name, the Kennedy mystique, that they had to carry on. You also had a very vibrant, not only had but still have a very vibrant association of original JFK carrier folks, and that carried on to this ship as well. So we had the association carried on. You had the Kennedy family that carried on. You know, his sponsors, his daughter. Uh, I mean, you have all that basically all wrapped up. Um, it was something that, you know, really kind of resonated. Uh, yesterday, Mike, I did a show with the Wall Street Journal reporter, Lisa Lin, who's the co-author of a new book about China, Surveillance State. Um, is this or was this carrier built and designed to confront the Chinese? I mean, after all, um, that is the, the the pressing threat, I guess, to to American maritime power, isn't it? Well, let's remember this is a four class carrier. Four class carriers were built, well, designed, were being built now, but were designed basically just at the end of the Cold War. Um, so these car, you know, the carriers were were built to basically go and and American presence, force, and power around the globe to all the different parts, not with any particular adversary in mind, because at that point in time, we, we were kind of like, you know, the rulers of the sea. Um, and, and it's also important to remember that while carriers are built, or designed, I should say, to win any conflict they go into, um, what they're operating as is to make sure that the sea lanes are kept open for American commerce. That's what the, that's what our business of the U.S. Navy and has but as a, a nuclear character are they designed for nuclear war i mean can they participate in wars which are non-nuclear so the, the nuclear part of this is simple and what that means is that these carriers can stay at sea until those power plants die basically i mean the the only thing that limits them is is, is are the folks you know the people on board and that's the limiting factor for a carrier operator really so it's just propulsion that means these ships can go you know they can go out and they stay out and see for long, very long periods of time without worrying about being refueled and things like that so it has nothing to do with the type of war they get into i mean quite honestly if you have you know uh nuclear missile i mean the way they are targeting everything like that could take out a carrier but it'd be right now there's no targeting carriers with nuclear missiles. I mean, that, that's not the kind of, they're, they're meant for a different kind of war. The, the, the nuclear war, both nuclear missiles, does not does not include carriers. That would be the, more or less the boomer submarine force that carries out that kind of battle. Michael, this carrier cost $11 billion to build. How long did it take? And, and, and give us some stats. What's its size? Okay, How much so, does it weigh? so the first steel cut for this, um, about decade ago, they started ordering the, ordering that steel and parts for that a few years before that. So, so 
and the ship not even commissioned yet. It was launched, but now they're still doing the combat systems and testing of all the systems. And so that gives you quite an idea of how long from, you know, from start to finish how long go for here. Uh, now basically, you know, get an idea of the size. If you were to take uh, Empire State Building and lay it down the side, about the size of a carrier. Um, so this is a serious. This is a serious, serious bit of equipment. Absolutely, it's got two nuclear power plants on board, but it has. It, it's also a, a floating city, right? I mean, a real floating city with up to five thousand Americans on board. You know, and on top of that, you're going to have to have in there places for sleep, eat. Um, they got hospital facilities on board. I mean, you just. And, and it's essentially a Navy base, you know, its own Navy base with its own runways and everything like that for the launch and recovery. And that all goes out to sea. So it gives you an idea of, you know, what these things are about. Uh, Michael, um, lots of rumors about Biden and Taiwan and China. Uh, Biden's increasingly defining himself as a, a hawk on China. There are lots of rumors that the Chinese are developing technology that can sink these kinds of characters. Uh, these kind of carriers. What, what, what would be your response to that? How secure are they in the event of a conflict with okay, China? So, God let's 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 kind of like, there's two parts of that. One is let's talk about the carrier killer missiles, the the DF is a twenty one DF six, nothing like that. So basically, what you're saying is we can target with a ballistic missile, a carrier, super long range, hundreds and hundreds, not thousands of miles out to sea and everything like that. Um, the Chinese so far, the only thing they've hit with that is a kind of a drawn carrier outline uh, um, out in, in the plane somewhere. They have fired these missiles out into the sea, but nothing really targeting. They've not, so they've never proven a capability of hitting anything at sea, let alone something like a carrier that can move fairly quickly. So, and we get a fairly good idea of when these things are launched. So when they're, you know, these carriers, the whole carrier story can be moving fairly quickly away from it. Then on top of that, the layered system, the protection system for these carriers, the shielding system, it doesn't go out alone. It comes out for carrier strike group. That's include a couple destroyers, probably a cruiser, probably. Um, or kind of small ships around there. These cruisers and these destroyers are armed with the Aegis combat system. These, these things are designed to find, locate, and shoot down missiles of various kinds. So um, I will say this, that when the carrier killer missiles first were kind of put out there, and you had a lot of folks in Congress who were really worried about this and were going on saying how vulnerable they were, um, I can tell you that uh, some Navy official went over, gave them some classified briefings, and after that, there was very little talk of, of concern about that from, from those folks uh, who seemed to be pretty pretty clear on just how protected the carrier could be from them. Now, how vulnerable is a carrier? Carriers are been vulnerable since they've been put to sea, honestly. You know, you know, you put a, a submarine up in inside a carrier strike group, and, and, and that can be done, you know, it wouldn't be incredibly easy, nor would it be impossible. It's the question of, though, of who wants to do that to a carrier. So if China were to attack and take out a carrier, 
I'll leave it up to you and the folks listening to think of what would happen with that. What would happen if China took out a carrier of 5,000 Americans on board? What would be the U.S. response to that? I can't imagine that China would want to do that, especially anytime soon, because China kind of, China kind of likes the world that the U.S. has created. Um, they've thrived in this economic. They just want their half of it. That's all. Uh, Michael, um, uh, the, another of the messages um, uh, on on from the workers is we build freedom. Do you think that's true? Are these carriers and the John F. Kennedy in particular? Um, is this what freedom is? Do you think? Do well, that's an interesting question. So I would say it represents freedom. And in, in, in this sense, that it represents, you know, if you talk to folks uh, um, in countries around the world, I mean, the carriers don't patrol off the U.S. coast to protect the U.S., you know. that's The carriers go abroad pretty much, and that's where it is. So nothing says America's here like an aircraft carrier silhouette, you know. And when you talk to the, the especially the military leaders and even some of the people, People abroad, especially Asia Pacific, because you, you've gone on a few times about China. And so let, let's address that. When they see America out there, they say, hey, hmm, everyone else is afraid to put their ships out here because of what China might do. But here comes the U.S., and they're not afraid, you know? And so there's a representation of a freedom of the seas. I mean, that's, that is so important, is that you have to come to go and patrol the International waters, and by patrolling international waters, as I said before, that means others can put their ships into the international waters, including China. And China has benefited the fact that American carriers have been out there keeping these waterways open for anyone and everyone to you know run their commercial ships or whatever vessels they want in international waters. Does that answer your uh, question? This sound of heavy metal will please a lot of our audience. The hard days and nights of the shipyard workers who built America's supercarriers. It's your second book. Your first book was Crashback, the power clash between the U.S. and China in the Pacific. Let's hope that the two books don't get linked with any actual power clash. Uh, congratulations on the book, Michael. What else um, should people be reading? What are you reading these days that... Um, you find so, important, interesting, yeah, and interesting, and recommend our viewers and, and listeners. I tend to uh, look for a lot of uh, research material, reading research material for what I'm working on at the time. And uh, right, right now, I'm kind of looking at what the U.S. is doing up in the Arctic. Uh, so, you know, I was just got done a thousand um, mile uh, war with about um, U.S. fighting in Russia's war. War two. I don't think a lot of people realize Japan actually took you, took you territory and, and occupied it um, out there during World War II. Um, and, and also, I mean, anything John coming in the country uh, with John McVeigh, I think is important. Um, idea of, of you, we've been talking a little bit about you know China and the U.S. Uh, I think you need to throw Russia in the mix and what's happening in the Arctic right now. So that's kind of some of the material I've been reading right lately.